Hey, this morning you can take your Bibles and turn to the epistle of Jude, right before Revelation. We'll be looking at other scriptures today, some in the Old Testament, so I'd like you to turn there when we get to that. Jude chapter 1, of course, there's only one chapter. We're going to be looking today at verse 5 through 7, but before I look there, and uh, let's pray. Father, this morning, as we approach your word, we come humbly before you as your people. Lord, make us attentive. Bring to our attention the things that need to be brought to our attention so we can be more sober more attentive to what we're listening to and to even look at our own life and be more uh, aware of how we're living. And I pray, Lord, as we do that, that every day we would be growing in holiness and godliness. We would be growing in more discernment and be ready in our own mind to give an answer of the hope that lies within us. I pray, Lord, that for us. And I thank you for your word today, in Christ's name, amen. Not too long ago, I used to pull my telescope out and gaze upon some astronomical event that was taking place, like seeing a meteor come apart and crash into the surface of the giant gas planet Jupiter, or catch a glimpse of the rings of Saturn or even to follow a comet that was traveling close to the Earth. I used to do that more than I do now. Well, one day I was uh, pulling out my telescope, and and a young man stopped by to see what I was doing. And we engaged in small talk, and then gradually we started talking about creation and how wonderful it was and how amazing God was to create this vast and incredible and precise universe. He said that he was a Christian, so we got on the subject of the gospel, and I asked him the two diagnostic questions to see if he really understood the biblical gospel, which, of course, those questions would be, have you come to a place in your spiritual life that if you know if you die today, you go to heaven? It's kind of a yes and no answer. And then the second one, if you did die and stand before God, God would say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What answer would you give him? And as I put out those questions, uh, he couldn't answer the questions correctly. So I started sharing the gospel with him, God and who God was and man and, and then Christ and a response. And I shared with him the wrath of God upon sin and that everyone is actually heading for hell because of their sin unless they come, repent, and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And then he said to me, oh, I, oh, oh no, his Jesus would not send anyone to hell. And I said to him as politely as I could, well, the Jesus of the Bible would. He would send people to hell who did not believe in him as Lord and Savior. It is Jesus that rescues sinners from heading to hell 
and by faith in his substitutionary death and resurrection can be forgiven, cleansed, and made right with God so they don't have to go there. And then finally he says, I could not believe in a Jesus who could send people to hell. And that was the end of our conversation. And of course, that man created in his own mind a Jesus of his own making and of his own liking, which actually the Bible calls idolatry. And so that kind of understanding is very deceptive because people think they're believing in Jesus, but their understanding of the biblical Jesus is all wrong. So that's idolatry. So he was believing what was false, and if he stays in that belief, I never saw him again, it will condemn him because he has not been rescued from the wrath of God and the condemnation of his own sin by repenting of that sinning and trusting in Christ. I pray that he, he would, after that conversation, think more about it and hear the gospel and actually believe. So Jesus will and must send those who do not repent of their sin and believe in him. He must send them away from him forever because Jesus cannot let sin in his perfect heaven. That's a sobering thought. It really is. Because I, I, I think that I've talked and met several other people after that conversation who believe the same thing. But remember what the Bible says, do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy the body and soul in hell. So if... We follow the scriptures. We know the return of Christ and the assignment of all people either to eternal blessedness in heaven or eternal condemnation in hell is sound biblical teaching. But I would never admit that's easy teaching because when you really think about it, it really lays heavy on your heart to where one would spend eternity. So we come to this epistle in Jude, and Jude is concerned about the gospel. He's concerned that the false teachers are presenting to the people that are possibly in the church, that are in the church, and giving them a false understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and other aberrant ways of thinking and living. And so... He, of course, starts out the epistle saying, talking to the called, to those who are in Christ because they've been called, to those who have been beloved of the Father, to those who have been kept for Jesus Christ, and those who are kept for Jesus Christ, as they live their life, they receive really abundant and multiplied mercy and peace and love that comes from God. And then they're given a responsibility because of that, and that is to defend the faith. In verse number three, they are they're appealed to by the by Jew to contend earnestly for the faith. That that's the body of truth that has been delivered to the church, and it's our responsibility to hear it, to study it, to meditate upon it, to memorize it, to memorize it. And so we are to live cautiously aware of 
the enemy, because from last message, he is, uh, the enemy has missionaries that are sneaky, they're ungodly, they reject the truth and replace the truth with some other, tr- they're calling truth, which is not, and of course, they reject the exclusive claims of Christ upon them. And so they are people that are not obeying the word of God. They are adhering to false teaching, and they are not obeying Christ by even their behavior. They live a sinful lifestyle. They are living actually in contradiction to the life of Jesus Christ and to his teaching, and they think they can live that way or live any way, and some people do believe they can live any way and the any way they choose because they're going to receive God's mercy and grace. No matter what I do, God can God will forgive me. So this Lord's Day, the scripture is really directing us to be reminded of the dreadful fate of three groups the Lord held judgment on in the past. I know we dealt some things in Sunday school about the past, The Lord really wants us to remember the past because the past is something that, especially things that have actually happened, can teach us to steer away from those things today. So there's three well-known Old Testament stories that resemble the sin of false teachers and the judgment that that they will incur if they don't repent and believe in Christ the way they ought to. Second Peter and Jude are similar in that they both teach that sin is followed by judgment. They both teach that, and they both teach that in a very direct way. So now I want, to, want you to direct your attention at verse number 5. The first part of verse number 5 where it says this, Jude chapter 1, Now I, now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now, he is saying here, Christians really need to remember so that the truth of Scripture sticks to their minds. People don't need new truth, but only to gain a clearer understanding of the eternal truth that God has already revealed in the Word of God and given to the church. Now, what is important for us? Why is that important? Because it helps us to navigate the the winding road of life with a strong, objective reality that the Word of God can be trusted while we're on our journey home. So the real substance is found in the eternal truth of God while we live each day of our lives. Now, why ought, to we, ought, why ought we to remember in this way so that the eternal truth of God's word will not be forgotten and will actually stick in our thinking? So we are to remember three past judgments, and how God responded to each group 
and then also as they responded to God and how a righteous judge deals with them. And here's the first truth, which is on the screen, that we are to remember the condemnation of the unfaithful for their unbelief. In verse number 5, it says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all these things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So the people in Egypt experienced the power of the God of Israel against the many gods of Egypt by sending the plagues upon them. And the people of Egypt also experienced the power of God, the God of Israel, against the most powerful and well-equipped army of that day when he drowned them in the Red Sea. Israel further experienced the rescuing power of God where he saved his people from 400 years of bondage and slavery by his mighty arm he delivered his people from the power of Egypt and he brought them into the wilderness in which he said and did take care of all their needs. Every one of their needs was taken care of by God. But I want you to notice that in our passage here, in verse number 5, it says, the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, that not all the ones who left Egypt were believers. Many failed to put their trust in Yahweh, in the Lord, they failed to do that. And so their sin in this passage of Scripture, now no matter how it's manifested, is the sin of unbelief. Can any one of us commit that sin? Yes. So all these sins that are going to be presented, we all can commit. But we don't take sin as seriously as we ought to. And I want you to notice in the passages that we're going to look at is that this sin of unbelief is manifested among the people in all kinds of ways. And so take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Numbers, and we're going to look at several passages, and I want to identify some things in those passages that the people were living out their unbelief toward God. I won't go into the great detail about them, but I do want to mention each one of them. The first one is when Israel made a golden calf. You remember that? The Bible says in Exodus 32, you don't have to turn to this passage, then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. So the Lord responded to them by judging them. And then notice in Numbers 11, verse 33, this is when they despised the manna God gave them. Remember, God gave them manna out of heaven. And as as they despised God, it said this. Remember, they were craving the meat that they had in Egypt, and they were desiring to have that instead of the manna from heaven. And notice what it says in verse 33 of Numbers 11. 
while the meat was still being uh, between their teeth before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So in other words, their unbelief that God would take care of them and meet all their needs, they were already desiring in their hearts something else. And then notice in Numbers chapter 16, verse 46 through 50, this was Israel's constant murmuring and disputing against the leaders of, that God put in place, Moses and Aaron. And so in verse 46 of Numbers 16, it says, Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put, it, put in it fire from the altar and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for the wrath of God has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. And verse 47, then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly, for before the plague had begun among the people, so he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. Verse 48, he took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague would be checked in verse 49. But those who died by the plague was 14,700 besides those who died on the account of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting, for the plague had been checked. So again, they didn't want God's approved leaders over them. That's how they manifested their unbelief. And then in another passage, in Numbers 29, we see here that Israel committed, it seems like their, their, their sins got worse. They committed now immorality with Moabite women and worshiped their gods. So they didn't want to live by God's commandments. In Numbers chapter 25, verse number 1, it says, While Israel remained in Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord. Now, that's pretty severe. But again, unbelief was manifesting itself before uh, in these different ways, and God says, no, you're not going to get away with that. I'm a God of justice and righteousness. I'm a God of truth. I'm a God who takes care of you, has mercy on you, who delivered you from Egyptian bondage, but you're not remembering that. You're just going by the dictates of your own heart. But these people are manifesting unbelief because they weren't believing in God. And, of course, the Bible goes on to say in that same passage, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent uh, and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague of the sons of Israel was checked, and those who died by the plague were 24,000 people that they decided to say, hey, listen, we're going to give up uh, the commandments of God between one man and one woman. We're not going to marry within Israel. We're going to go outside of Israel, and we're going to, uh, have relationships with the Moabite women who were idolaters, and so they began to now not only commit 
physical adultery, but spiritual adultery against God, and God says, no, that's not going to take place, and he holds judgment on them. So what is their judgment? Their judgment is physical death. What was the root sin of in their heart that produced all this aberrant behavior? Well, right here in Jude chapter 1, verse 5, subsequently it says, destroy those who did not believe. But do we actually believe that not believing is that serious? And that it could bring this kind of judgment? In fact, there's only two people of that generation that made it into the promised land. And who was that? That was Caleb and Joshua, right? And this is what it says in Scripture, not a man was left of them. So all the people that wandered in the wilderness, they were looking to the promised land, but they didn't want the promised land. They wanted Egypt. And only two people made it. Now, two people of that particular generation, the younger ones, did make it. So they simply did not believe. They didn't believe God could bring them into the promised land because they feared the people and desired the world's security instead of God's protection and care and security. So the passage that we read this morning in our scripture reading, the last part of the passage says this, how long will the people spurn me and how long will they not believe in me? despite all the signs which I performed in their midst. So what is Jude saying here? What what does he want us to remember? He wants us to remember that the sin of unbelief is serious and will be judged by God. And don't be caught in unbelief like they were. Don't be caught in unbelief like they were. So that's the first thing he wants us to remember. Here's the second thing he wants us to remember. Look at verse number 6 of Jude chapter 1. It says this. He wants us to remember the condemnation of the wicked angels for their rebellion. It says in verse number 6, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that of the great day. So what is their sin here? Their sin is rebellion. And it is seen in the action of these fallen angels who did not stay within the limits of the authority that God gave them. They left heaven. They left being servants of God. They left the role of messengers to humanity. They left the place the place they belonged and rebelled against God, their creator. So what is their sin? Well, the sin goes really back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, where I'll read it to you. It says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, And they took wives for themselves whom they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit 
shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, the the name here for uh, Nephilim is really the word for giant. That these, this uh, particular instance here where I believe the best interpretation here for the word sons of God is really, uh, well, there's two that you can uh, define sons of God because they were often mentioned in Scripture as uh, the fallen angels, um, that they are the rulers claiming divine status who were possibly demon-possessed or the sons of God mating with human women. And I believe that that is the, the interpretation that fits the context the best, that fallen angels came to earth took on human bodies and cohabitated with women and produced children who became the heroes and mighty warriors of ancient times or the giants. So these fallen angels crossed the species line by mating with human women. And of course, Jude makes clear here in verse 6 that the angels did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. This was a deliberate plan by a company of fallen angels to rebel against God's plan and order. And these fallen angels left their own house and went after strange flesh by lusting after human women to try to produce a demon-human race, an evil race of men which would become unredeemable. The episode in Genesis brought God's judgment on the world through the flood. That's when God sent the flood and wiped out everyone because not only the wickedness of man was great, but this was going on also at that time. And so God wiped them out. So what's their judgment? Back in Jude chapter 1, verse 6, that God kept has kept in eternal bonds under darkness... For the judgment of the great day, their judgment is to be bound in darkness forever. As Peter says the same thing, it says, If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, that God has final authority to judge in the spiritual realm also, in the heavenly, he judges heavenly beings. God judges fallen angels who sinned. That is, that they rebelled against God's authority, and God could not let that stand. So these angels perverted God's way, and God refused to spare them because of their wicked sin. So these fallen rebellion, rebellious angels is seen in their uh, it's ba- they're really their uh, rebellion is seen mostly in their dissatisfaction with their lot that God gave them. They weren't satisfied with what they even saw of the glory of God. These angels 
thought God was holding out on them and that there was something better. They didn't like God's plan for them, in other words. They, they gave up the awesome privilege of being ministers and servants of God for something they didn't actually expect to be bound for eternity in darkness. So, if you have been thinking that you are dissatisfied with your life and you surmise that your plan is better than what God has for you, I would admonish you to give up that foolish and self-centered and, yes, rebellious thinking and repent of it and and really unreservedly accept God's plan for your life because God's plan is the best plan. If you try to alter it or change it in any way, you'll just mess it up. See, so we are to remember that dissatisfaction with God's plan for us is actually rebellion against God, and it brings God's judgment. God's will for your life, as it is recorded in a small little booklet, God's will for your life, that God wants you to be saved, he wants you to be submissive to his will, he wants you to be sanctified, he wants you to be serving, and if need be, he wants you to be suffering. And you don't want to make the mistake, the same mistake the fallen angels made by giving up God's plan for what they thought was something better, but in the end, it ended up being the worst it could ever be. And that's what happens when we want to cast aside God's will, think we have something better, and it's not better. So remember, how are you thinking about that? That's the second thing he wanted us to remember. A third thing he wants us to remember is verse in verse number 7 of Jude chapter 1. He wants us to remember the condemnation of the wicked cities for their immorality. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So when the Lord made known to Abraham that dreaded visitation of judgment that was coming upon Sodom and the other cities of the plain for their awful iniquities. Abraham humbly petitioned the Lord and asked whether the Lord would deal with the righteous and the wicked in the same manner. Abraham asked that Sodom would be spared if there were to be found a number of righteous people in that city. And he went from 50 to 10. Remember that story? And the Lord freely granted to show mercy if there were 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Were there? No. There wasn't 10 people that were righteous. 10 people who wanted to follow the Lord 
So Abraham for sure was mindful of Lot and his family. Would Lot and his family be counted with the righteous or not? According to 2 Peter, Lot's character was still substantially true, where it says there, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, then his family, of course, was rescued too. So Lot demonstrated his faith by recognizing and hating the immoral behavior of those around him and by protecting the visitors in that city by bringing them under his roof and protecting them in his home, those angels that came that night to hold judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. So what is their sin? Their sin in the city is they indulged in gross immorality. So along with the gross sexual sin, the people of Sodom were filled with pride, they were filled with greed, they were filled with self selfishness, and they oppressed the poor, they oppressed strangers. However, the people were driven by sinful lust, that the sin of sodomy, which is referred to more commonly today as homosexuality, the crowning sin that brought judgment was homosexuality right here in Sodom and Gomorrah. So if we just think back on what exactly happened there. Well, from Genesis chapter 19, which you don't need to turn there, just to to bring to your mind that this sin permeated the city, it says there, and every age group and every part of the town. There was no part and no human being in that city that was not affected by the sin. His lot and his family and his family was affected, but in a different way. He, he knew what the right way was. Also, their sin was to go after strange flesh. That means anything other than the normal man-woman relationship in marriage. They were going after men, going after men. And here, of course, men were wicked and wanted to have sexual relations with Lot's guests, which would be the angels. And the Bible says they acted wickedly. And then these wicked men will have their lust and their needs met by, by uh, only what they think they didn't want anybody coming over and judging them. They even said about Lot, you've only been with us a short time and you're acting like our judge? So brethren, there are some, some sins that, is great, that are greater than other sins, and not all sin is equal. Homosexuality is a particularly wicked and heinous sin to God. And why is that? Because it is a twisting of the created order. That's not how God created things. Remember what it says in Genesis, God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female. And then he says also in Genesis chapter 2, for this reason a man shall leave father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So homosexual and lesbian relationships twist or distort the divinely instituted paradigm for sexual intimacy in the heterosexual marriage. And the importance of 
the gender distinctives of Adam and Eve, that God in relationship creates man in relationship to a male and a female. So gender complementarianism is only rightly exhibited in marriage and in marriage alone. Second thing is that uh, it's a heinous and wicked sin is because it, it's a falsification of the procreation order. The mandate given in the beginning was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That was God's command to Adam and Eve. And this mandate was not given to two men or two women, but a man and a woman without artificial means, homosexual and lesbian couples cannot procreate or fulfill God's command. Such can only be naturally and righteously fulfilled through a monogamous heterosexual marriage. So men and women, are brought together in marriage by God. That's God's way. That is really the only way God blesses. Marriage also leads to procreation, doesn't it? Within a proper sexual relationship that exists between a man and a woman. And if homosexual, homosexuality is really allowed to permeate a culture or a country, it will really render that particular country or civilization extinct finally because it just goes against God's created order. So what is troubling though today and what has been a revealing indicator of what young people between really the ages of 18 and 24 think about certain sexual behavior such as sodomy, is, is really alarming because they really don't think the homosexual issue is a real issue today. And I'm not just talking about young people in the world, but also young people in the church. That the culture has continually bombarded the minds of people with the thought that certain alternate lifestyles are normal and acceptable behavior. And even teaching that there's more than man and woman. There's an, another alternative. They think that people should no longer question it, or but just accept it, and especially if it is accepted by the masses. And for some who hold such views, will punish you if you don't agree with them. So they say they are tolerant and accepting people, but are not at all tolerant of accepting God's truth found in the Bible. And for the most part, a certain group have no tolerance for these things at all, especially the truth. They basically say we will not have a standard to live by from a God we don't believe in, we will live by our own standard, and that's really what is taking place. People living by their own standard. And so when we think about that, we have to say that because we live in a pornographic culture, that 
we must say that porn, uh, pornography is sin, that the only hope for conquering pornography is coming to Christ and having the Spirit of God indwell us so we can have victory over those things. And also a key place of pornography is really in the heart. It's in the imagination. It's in the minute-by-minute thinking that we have to put to death. Looking at pornography is usually driven by two sins, the sin of selfish pleasure and God's design, sexual pleasures to be found in giving pleasure to your covenant partner. And pornography is, by its very nature, self-focused sensuality. Also, it's driven by the sin of discontentment. Proverbs says that a man is, I find, uh, find his sex, sexual satisfaction, his exhilaration, his enjoyment with his wife. And the husband who is looking at other things will find discontentment within his marriage and vice versa because pornography is, is really taking root uh, on the female side too you know, in a large way today that it wasn't in the past. So we have to consider the consequences of viewing pornography that it really is, it displeases God and that it is a sin that enslaves to sexual lust it is, is, it's a sin that generates a crushing guilt feeling. And finally, it's a sin that really spiritually paralyzes people and causes them to move away from God's standard. Now, I, I mention that because we live in this culture. We live in a moral culture. And God takes this particular sin very seriously, too. For if you go back to Jude, verse number 7, notice what it says. It says, it says, what's their judgment? Their judgment is eternal fire, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire, that the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah is a reminder of God's view on sodomy, and proper understanding of sexual relationships, a relationship between one man and one woman in marriage. So divine judgment fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah, teaching that unbridled sin leads to ruin. And God reduced that that city, uh, those cities and the surrounding cities, to ashes, that Jude and Peter use Sodom and Gomorrah as an example for the punishment of the ungodly, which is characterized by eternal fire. For it says this in 2 Peter, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So this is what is in store for the ungodly, for the unbeliever, for the rebellious, for the immoral. Jesus' words in Luke 17, verse 29 and 30, actually indicate 
that the coming future judgment will be far greater than the judgment that was upon Sodom and Gomorrah. For this is what it says there, but on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And then he says this, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. That here, Flood language is used to describe the pouring down of God's wrath on these wicked cities, that God rained down sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah in a fiery deluge. And the result of that destruction caused the smoke to rise from these cities like the thick black smoke of a furnace of intense fire. The whole land was burned out so that nothing could grow there and no person could live there anymore till this day. So the final judgment will be far greater for those cities in Jesus' day than for Sodom because the greater and the final revelation has come to them in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 10. It says, but whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And then he went on to say, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city who rejects Christ. And then it goes on to say, the one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. In other words, Jesus Christ is rejected by people that their judgment will be greater than the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then all this is for what? This is for us to remember. This is for our instruction today that we don't commit the sin of unbelief, that we don't get caught in the sin of, of immorality or the sin of rebellion because that's what the false teachers were going to find in their life. That's how they are. That's what is produced in their life because if it's in their life, we need to stay away from it. Now, I would like you to take your Bibles and turn to one passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8 through 11. Notice what it says there in this passage. Paul giving the Corinthian church instruction there. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 8, he says, Nor let us act immorally, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day, verse number 9, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, in verse number 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer, in verse number 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come that all these Old Testament examples are for us to hedge against these sins. 
and not allow these sins to be part of our life. So God indeed judges sin justly. The unbelieving will be judged justly. The rebellious will be judged justly. The immoral humans will be judged justly and hear that they will occupy an eternal place called hell. For he said in Matthew 25, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been, has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So hell is a place of separation, of anguish, of agony, of sorrow. It is a real place, and it is a place no one should want to end up in. So if you think you have the right way, unless it's Christ's way, it is the wrong way. It is the way of self-centeredness and unbelief and rebellion and destruction. And the only person who can keep us out of such a place like hell is Jesus Christ. And do you know of the 12 times that hell is mentioned in the New Testament? 11 of them come from the lips of Jesus. So tell me that that is not serious. So remembering all these real historical events, God, the righteous judge, will hold people responsible for sin. All sin will be judged, and the sentence will be pronounced. And so this leads Jude into exposing the false teachers. So for us, let's remember, let's not forget that these things, all of us, we can commit. And Christ is the only answer for victory and salvation and rescuing us from eternal damnation and the punishment that will come upon those who do not repent and believe in Christ. That's the reality of it. So if you're a believer today, rejoice. If you're not a believer today, don't rejoice, but repent and come and believe. Finally believe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning. Some heavy scripture today, Lord. Yet, Lord, again, we, we need to hear it. We need to think about these things. We're bombarded every single day with all kinds of reasons and things that are false to pull us in a direction that we really shouldn't go. And so I pray, Lord, today that you would just be with your people. Give us a sensitivity and a discernment against these things. Help us never to forget that you are God who takes sin very seriously and that you will judge according to your righteous judgment. And I just pray, Lord, that we would be the people that have come to you and trusted you, Lord and Savior, that we're living our life uh, in the direction of holiness and godliness. And that, Lord, we don't at all desire to fall off the narrow path, but still walk circumspectly because we live in evil days. Help us to walk in the spirit that we'd not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now this morning we do have the Lord's table.
And so if you did not receive the elements this morning and you would like to receive it, just raise your hand and we'll pass them to you, all right? I do want to remind you that when we, when we come to the Lord's table, that the Lord's table, uh, we should partake of it as believers because it, it's, we're, it's part of our obedience to Christ. Uh, the Lord says, do this in remembrance of me. It does confirm uh, to believers our true interest in Christ. It also manifests in our own life the visible difference between us or the way we used to be when we belong to the world and now that we belong to Christ in the church, it, it makes there should be a difference. Uh, and who else does this but disciples of Christ? Uh, so it is, a, it is a very healthy exercise in Scripture to be partaking of the Lord's table because when we do so, we come as believers that confess our sin. We come as believers discerning uh, the body. We come as believers declaring uh, the death of Christ until he comes. We come as believers thankful uh, for so great a salvation. We come also joyful because God extended his mercy to us. We come also glory bound because the Lord's taking us to heaven uh, it declares also our belief in the new covenant. Uh, it was ratified by the blood of Christ, and because of his shed blood, our sin is washed away. Uh, it's covered. It is sent away from us forever. And then, of course, it declares our belief in the physical death of Christ, that he came into this world, took on a human flesh, died as a human on that cross, uh, the God-man on that cross, and he paid the wrath of, he paid for our sin, he took on the full wrath of God, 